a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm very excited because every other week I get to invite my friend Caleb Franz, who is the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast, on this program to talk about, well, history and action. And uh, we've got a great story to share with you today. Caleb, how are you? I'm doing well, Brian. Uh, I am very excited about this this week's uh, episode or, or this week's segment uh, for, for this, and uh, I think and we have a great story to tell people today. You reminded me as as we were preparing for this show um, that uh, the anniversary of the American Revolution is coming right up, and so I guess yep. the story today has a lot to do with that uh, that anniversary. It does, uh, and I think it it actually has uh, a lot to do with with sort of the the foundation of America and the way that uh, it really should be taught, uh, rather than the way that it's it's taught today. Um, with the, the anniversary of the American Revolution, of course, is on April uh, 19th is, is when uh, sparks flew at, at Lexington and Concord, kicking things off in, in 1775. Um, and the night before, we had a, a certain midnight ride uh, with an individual named Paul Revere. Um, but what is lesser known is that he was not alone on that ride, and uh, there were actually a few people who rode with him um, one in which had a very important role, uh, not just in, in that night, but also throughout the course of the American Revolution and our early uh, Republic phase. Okay, so Paul Revere, you're right. That's going to be a very familiar name. What is the name of this under indiv- other individual who played a pivotal role in that event? So in, uh, in, in season, or excuse me, in episode two of, uh, episode three, I should say, in uh, season two of, of my program, I highlighted a an individual named Wentworth Cheswell, uh, and Wentworth Cheswell was someone who, if if you're from New Hampshire, you might have heard of him. Largely, most people don't know who this person is, but he was actually the black man who rode with, with Paul Revere uh, on the eve of the American Revolution to warn uh, to warn the uh, the area, the immediate area around them of the, uh, the impending British invasion. And in fact, uh, while, while Paul Revere went to, to go make sure that Sam Adams and, and John, John Hancock got out uh, of the area safe to avoid British capture, Wentworth Cheswell actually rode north towards, uh, towards his home of New Hampshire to uh, activate and to call to arms all of the people in their, in their homes uh, to let them know that they were that the uh, the regulars were coming, as as he said, instead of not not necessarily the British, because they were all British at that time. Um, and uh, it was it was him who actually had up to a third of uh, those involved in in the conflict that would follow um, the the next day after Lexington uh, Lexington and Concord. Up to a third of the pe- people who were there and engaged were activated by. Uh, Wentworth Cheswell on that day. Wow, dang! I mean, look, yeah. it's a to the to a lot of us. Okay, that's so far removed. Yeah, yeah, but really, that was that was the turning point where at that point they were committed. I mean, when they resisted by force, 
British attempts to, or the, I'm sorry, the regulars' attempts to to <laughs> deprive them of, of arms and ammunition. You know, it, there, there was no backtracking from that point, was there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he, he sort of helped solidify that. Uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, a lot of defeats that that the American army um, would face in in that uh, during that time uh, in the in the American Revolution. But that day uh, on uh, on 1775 would not be one of them. Uh, they they repealed the the British. Of course, they would come back, and it would be a long uh, long and and uh, turbulent struggle. But uh, Wentworth Cheswell helped to ensure that that struggle uh, was going to start off with very strong footing for the United States. I got to say that name, Wentworth Cheswell, that uh, that <laughs> is a name made for history books. I mean, that it that, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel cheated yeah, that sounds, I didn't learn it growing up. <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds very, uh, very epic in nature. Um, but, you know, that's honestly that I think is is kind of the hook into his story, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg here. Uh, his his story, I think, highlights just how much um, that uh, from from the outset of of uh, America's story, it was always meant to be diverse. You know, last last time we we touched on uh, Mum Bet and the the slave who who sued for her freedom and 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 actually won. Uh, and and sort of set the constitutional precedent uh, for, for for liberty as opposed to slavery. These people were very integral in the uh, in the American Revolution and in the early foundation of our country, just as much as some of the more well known, more aristocratic uh, founding fathers. Um, and I, I constantly kind of went back in in the back of my mind thinking. Why? Why are these people, you know, not highlighted? Why? Why are we not learning about these people? Because these are amazing people. And to me, I don't, I don't know that it's anything nefarious or, or anything like that. But it certainly doesn't help the the notion that America was always meant to be uh, only for for uh, white slave owners. And and in fact, these people like Mumbet and these people like. Wentworth Cheswell, who was actually uh, George Mason University, credits him as being the very first uh, black elected official in American history. Um, that's something else that, you know, a lot of people might be 1860s, maybe it was the first time that happened. No, it was from from the beginning, actually, 100 years earlier, <laughs> before the Civil War ever happened. Um, and that really kind of spits that that narrative in the eye. Uh, and says that we we were not meant to to continue this sense of oppression uh, that a lot of people experience. It was it was a reality certainly at the time, um, but the idea of America was about overcoming that uh, reality rather than sustaining it. So, what did he go on to do? I mean, how does how does his life story end up? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, he he was the first black to, uh, elected official in in American history. Uh, and actually, he held that position every year except for one year, um, uh, every year up until the year of his death. Uh, he had, had some sort of elected official position. Uh, he kind of rotated in, in some ways uh, locally, but, but uh, he, was, he was an elected official. He was a politician. He was a soldier who uh, fought at the Battle of Saratoga um, in uh, 1777. 
Um, he helped. Uh, he actually signed uh, a document called the Association Test, which uh, basically gave a support to the delegation in Congress in 1776, uh, saying yes. Vote for independence, <laughs> uh, make it, and, and that was it's something that's uh, often overlooked. Uh, but that was an important step uh, in in making sure that our our independence was secured. And putting his name on that document was was just as risky as the uh, individuals in Philadelphia putting their names on the document of the Declaration of Independence. Um, he was New Hampshire's uh, first. Uh, archaeologist, actually, uh, someone who who made sure that uh, that the the science of archaeology actually uh, a lot of it uh, came from him, or he was a, a forefather of that. Um, and also, he was a local historian uh, that preserved his his local history. Um, and all of these things are from someone who was the grandson of a slave, uh, who was um, uh, one one quarter uh, black himself. Um, and, and this is something that a lot of us, uh, overlook in our, in our history books today, but he, he certainly, uh, shouldn't be. Gosh, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to have to keep that name Wentworth in mind as, as, as I get grandkids arriving, I'm going to have to suggest to my kids, you know, (laughs) Wentworth is a pretty amazing name. I'm, I'm actually, I'm surprised that actually more people don't have it. Um, where could you steer people to, to learn a little bit more about him? So, uh, as I mentioned on uh, episode three of season two of Profiles in Liberty, uh, which just wrapped up, so you can listen to the entire season now. Um, it's all currently available. Uh, but that episode is entirely devoted to telling his story and making sure that, uh, that it gets its proper uh, due diligence. Okay, this is great. I mean, okay, so you've whet the appetite of the audience here to, to find out more. Let's tell them where they can find your Profiles in Liberty podcast. Absolutely. So Profiles in Liberty can be found anywhere where you get your podcasts. Uh, It's part of the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Um, And I am well underway currently. The season two just wrapped up. I'm well underway currently of writing the scripts for season three already. So it's it's, it's an exciting time and it's a busy time. Um, But there are a lot more stories to tell. uh, And I am I'm looking forward to telling them. All right, Caleb, I appreciate you joining me every other week to share these stories. I will have links where people can follow your podcast and uh, look forward to our next conversation. I look forward to learning a little bit more about the parts of history I didn't know. Thanks again. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you find value at any level in what you hear on this program or what you find in my show notes, I'd like to ask you to uh, consider supporting my sponsors or at least reaching out to them and letting them know that their message is reaching your ears. They include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, sewingandquiltingcenter.com and hslammo.com. So politicians, uh, you know, they they really wish that uh, the public would take them as seriously as they take themselves. How do I know this? Well, 
because I, I look at the the gravity, the the incredible somberness with which the uh, the January sixth um, committee is doing its work, and boy, they they really want us to believe. You know, this was nothing more than than an insurrection, and my goodness, they were going to overthrow the entire government. And I don't believe a word of it. Now, let me make really clear here: there were people who definitely stormed the Capitol, broke in, you know, broke windows and coordinated to to enter the Capitol without permission. And and for purposes, I assume, to to disrupt the uh, certification of the Electoral College votes. But I don't believe for a moment that most of the people, the 600 plus people who have been uh, arrested and uh, some of whom have languished in, in jail ever since that day or ever since they were rounded up, you know, I don't believe that they were insurrectionists in the least. I think this is this is a case of, of the political elite just really trying to uh, trying to, to play the victim. And and if that sounds cynical, well, I've been watching politics long enough. I become pretty cynical in anything that politicians do. I don't think they're truthful. I don't think that they they operate in the same reality as the rest of the world. And so in their minds, you know, I mean, they're, well, this person won't cooperate. That, that person will we'll hold them in contempt. And they're, they're making this incredible media spectacle. This melodrama that's, that's determined to cast them as victims and anyone who questions what they've been doing. By the way, that's a lot of us, at least those of us who are paying attention, you know, as, as enemies, insurrectionists, you know, people, seditionists. Oh, they're so, they're so afraid. I'll give you an example. Uh, did did we not just see uh, the the Congress pass a law against lynching last week? I mean, they're hailing this as historic, right? It's a uh, lynching is now considered a hate crime, and you know they've they've passed this brave law, and it's like, wow, well, Jesse Smollett's going to be happy to hear this. You know, seems like somebody tried to lynch him. Oh wait, that was himself. <laughs> Guess he could be charged with a hate crime. But think about what they're doing. Think about the action there. Taking someone's life as a lynch mob has never been legal. It's always been an extra legal activity. It's always been wrong on its face. It's it's a wrong action. So why pass this? Well, it was because we have to show that we're you know standing up for the right things. We're showing how woke we are, right? I have a theory, and and this is going to sound a little bit radical. So you know, please brace yourself. Maybe politicians are worried. That, uh, that as the people catch on to what they have been doing to us, what they are insisting that we do or else, they're going to get some pushback. In fact, they may actually get enough pushback that people may rise up and march them off to a gallows should that day ever come. Now, I'm not hoping for that kind of thing. I think that would be pretty much the worst thing that's ever happened. Yes, even worse than the war between the states. But... I also understand you can't back people into a corner indefinitely. You can't put them in a position where it's, you know, jab or job or whatever else they're doing. And I look at the political class and I think I don't I don't trust them. One of the reasons I don't trust them is because the law always seems to benefit the elites. Got an article here from Kent McManigal. This is I love Kent's ability to just cut right to the chase. Here's what he says. He says, it's aggravating that New Mexico's Supreme Court decided the petitions aimed at possibly holding the New Mexico governor accountable for her COVID overreach were legally invalid. 
Aggravating, but not surprising. His point being that somehow the law always benefits the elite political class and their schemes at the expense of the rest of us and our liberty. So whenever mere people try to hold government accountable and make it stay within its clear boundaries, the state finds a way to brush their concerns aside. It finds those boundaries to be the ridiculous complaints of conspiracy theorists or extremists, even when it doesn't use those precise words. So this time it said the petitions are legally invalid because in their biased opinion, there was no crime. How could they have ruled otherwise when they're complicit in the political crimes? That's a good question. When government wants to do something that's clearly illegal, unconstitutional, the courts the government owns and controls nearly always find a way to twist or interpret the Constitution so they can do it. That's what interpreting the Constitution means, bending it away from its main purpose of restraining government just enough to let government get away with a crime, including crimes like COVID shutdowns or mandates or legislation concerning firearms or other weapons, legislation that isn't allowed in America. Or the crime of government-controlled schools, the issuing or denial of licenses to ration national right, rat, rat, natural rights rather for a price, patrolling the roads to waylay travelers, or whatever the government was never intended to, do, to be allowed to do in America under the U.S. Constitution. And Kent McManigle says this continues until there's no liberty left for the people, but the government has the freedom to do anything it wants. He points out how the benefit of doubt is always given to government interests over those of the people and their liberty, the opposite of how it has to be. Government has been allowed to police itself, a practice that never works with any institution anywhere. It's as though government doesn't realize that when you remove the ability to rein it in by peaceful means, such as petitions, you force the people to use other means. And this won't keep going the way government believes it will. They can only push so far before they've gone too far. And they won't know they've gone too far until it's too late. And he says that won't be a pleasant day for anyone. It will be, and it will be because the government won't allow the people to tell it no. Now, I realize for some people that's going to sound like, wow, that is such wild-eyed. I think that is the most rational, clear explanation that I've heard, though. And I think it's also a fair warning. I think the average person, the average citizen, doesn't get up, you know, filled with rage and, you know, spurred on by Donald Trump or talk radio or whatever it is. I don't think they're looking for, you know, a reason to lash out. I think for the most part, uh, we've been pretty, uh, pretty accommodating and pretty deferential to what the political class has insisted on forcing on us. But I also acknowledge there's a point where people wake up and say, you can't push us any further. We're not going to go any further. And this is one of the reasons why the Second Amendment, which apparently, you know, is, hey, great news for Ukrainian citizens. But, uh, you know, American politicians, you know, they're, they're very skeptical of the Second Amendment. And I think it's precisely because they recognize that when they have pushed too far, They don't want the citizenry to have the ability to march them off to a noose. Now, I'm thinking after a trial, of course, not just, you know, for the sake of (laughs) up against the wall, but you get the picture. They don't want us to be able to say no. 
And for people who have been, whose brains have been broken by the system into thinking, but the system, we have to work within the system and stuff. Look, if the system is, is systematically, sorry, it's <laughs> kind of redundant. If the system is methodically taking apart your liberties and forcing you into a kind of slavery, or at least to obedience to it, where, from which you have no option, Seems to me you ought to be able to withdraw your consent. Now, notice that's not a call for violence. That's just a recognition that there are limits to what government rightly can and should do. And I think the next time that, uh, for instance, uh, a general lockdown or a very restrictive kind of lockdown, a.k.a. Australia, New Zealand, is forced on the American people, whether it be at the local or the national level, I don't think it's going to go well, especially not for the people who are doing the forcing of it. And that's... That's very concerning to me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Please take the time to click on the link in my show notes. The one that's uh, titled lifesavingfood.com Look, I'm a believer in in being prepared. You call me a prepper, I'll take it as a compliment. I think that's that's actually a very good attitude to have. I also think a lot of people are catching on to this. I think that uh, it's it's becoming clear that you know, the instability and volatility in the volatility in the world uh, looks a lot like it could it could get very disruptive and very chaotic and that includes interrupting our food supplies. So to hedge against those kinds of uh, inconveniences or even dangers, as the case may be, would be a really good idea to have some good shelf-stable, like 25-year shelf-life food stored. Ways to filter your water, ways to cook. It's all there. Click on the link, lifesavingfood.com, and see for yourself. So let's, let's talk about politicians taking themselves so seriously. I want to share with you an article here from uh, Llewellyn King. It says the political class needs to level with us. Now, I'm, I, I really hope you understand. I'm not trying to generate hatred towards politicians, although I am definitely trying to generate distrust for people who are part of the political class and what they are telling us. I think that uh, I think too many of them really believe their press releases and think, well, they need me, and therefore, you know, I'm above whatever laws govern lesser beings, which is how they see us. They don't understand that their job is to be servants, not masters. And so a lot of them at every level get this master complex and start to behaving like they're the ones cracking the whip on us. If only there was a word for that. Hmm. Anyway, this article by Llewellyn King. He says, there's a rough road ahead for the world, and our political class isn't leveling with us. As Steve Odlin, president and CEO of the Conference Board, one of the nation's premier business research organizations, said in a TV interview, inflation will continue at least until 2024 and longer if things continue to deteriorate with the supply chain and the war in Ukraine. Particularly Odlin, who serves as a director of General Mills, fears a global food crisis with famine in Africa and many other vulnerable places if Ukrainian farmers don't start seeding spring crops to start this year's harvest. Now already, Ukraine, known as the world's breadbasket, has cut off exports to make sure there's enough food for their own people as war rages. 
Odland sees the or Odland rather sees the U.S. inflation continuing at seven to eight percent for for several years at best. But his primary worry is global food supplies as countries face a crisis of new and frightening proportions. Now his second worry is stagflation. If the rate of productivity falls below three percent, then we will have stagflation. This is what Odland told him during a recording of the White House Chronicle on PBS. It's a weekly news and public affairs program Llewellyn King hosts. Odlin faults the Federal Reserve for being timid in raising interest rates to counter inflation. But Llewellyn King says, I fault the political class for not leveling with us, and that's both parties. As we're in a state of perpetual election fervor, we're also in a state of perpetual happy talk. Get the rascals out and all will be well when my band of happy angels will fix things. That's what the political class says, and it's a lie. He says, we are in for a long and difficult period, which began with the pandemic that disrupted supply chains and set off inflation, and now the war in Ukraine has compounded that. Supply chains won't magically return to where they were before COVID-19 struck, and more likely they will have further constrictions because of the war. New supply chains need to be forged, and that will take time. For example, nickel, which is used in batteries that are reshaping the worlds of electricity and transportation and for stainless steel, will have to come from places other than Russia. Now, at present, Russia supplies 20% of the world's voracious appetite for high-purity nickel. Opening new mines and expanding old ones is going to take time. But the world's largest challenge is going to be food. Starvation in many poor countries and high prices at the supermarkets and rich ones, including the United States. Now, there are technological and alternative supply fixes for everything else, but they're going to take time. Food shortages will hit early and will continue while the world's farms adjust. There will be suffering and death from famine. The curtailing of Russian exports will affect the United States in multiple ways, some of which might eventually turn out to be beneficial as the creative muscle is flexed. In the utility industry, someone who's thinking big and boldly is Dwayne Hiley, president and CEO of Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association in Denver. Highly told Digital 360, the weekly webinar that emanates from Texas State University in San Marcos, the challenging problem of electricity storage could be solved not with lithium-ion batteries, but with iron-air batteries. In its simplest form, an iron-air battery harnesses the process of rusting to store electricity. So the process of rusting is used to produce power when it's exposed to oxygen captured on site. To charge the battery, an electric current reverses the process and returns the rust to iron. Now, clearly, as Hiley said, this won't work for electric vehicles because of the weight of iron, but in utility operations, these batteries could offer the possibility of very long drawdown times, not just four hours, as with current lithium-ion batteries. And there's plenty of iron stateside. Another highly concept is that instead of dealing with all the complexities of transporting hydrogen, it should be stored as ammonia, which is more easily handled. Now, this isn't magical thinking, but it's the kind of thinking that could lead us back to normal someday. And so he says politicians should stop the happy talk and tell us what we're facing. Now, the problem is, you know, there, there may be a few who will tell us, you know, what's going on. I mean, there's a couple that come to mind. Thomas Massey is one of those who I think, yeah, he's not exactly afraid to say what's on his mind. Uh, likewise, I think it's, it's true of uh, Rand Paul. There may be a few others. 
But generally, the political class, if their mouth is moving, they're lying. Now, having said that, I would welcome the political class actually being straight with us. But I think one of the reasons they don't is because in their minds, we are nothing but little children, right? We're we're toddlers. And, you know, the grown-ups here have to keep certain things from us because, well, you just couldn't handle it. They think we'd be out killing each other in the streets, you know, if, if, if we were to know the truth. I think the, the more likely explanation is if we knew the truth, we would turn our backs on them and say, you know what? We'll take care of this. We'll solve this problem. And we don't need your help. And that to them is, is a fate worse than death. What? I'm irrelevant. How could that be? I've got a link to uh, Llewellyn King's article here. I'd encourage you to take a look at it and, and see if you don't agree. The political class needs to level with us. I think they do. Now, let's shift gears and talk about why there's so much nonsense on the Internet. If you're a person who's seeking truth, and I assume by listening to this program, you're one of those people who's a truth seeker. Thomas Buckley has a very enlightening take on why there's so much Internet nonsense. He starts by asking, what does deer hunting have to do with the persistence of Internet idiocy? Now, first of all, he says, I'm not a deer hunter. I have no qualms about the practice. I've helped others dress and cook deer, like woodworking or stamp collecting. It was just an activity that I, that it was just never an activity that I took up. As for golf, oh, he says, oh, Lord, I wish I hadn't. But unlike golf, deer hunting is pretty necessary now that the populations of historical predator species, cougars or mountain lions or pumas, depending upon where you live, and wolves, and such are in in many areas too small to maintain local herds at at healthy levels. Now, this dearth of predators leads to problematic herds. And until relatively recently, this was not as big an issue as human hunters stepped into assuming the role of predator. But as hunting declined, problems increased as without limiting a predatory, without a limiting predatory force, deer populations became both much larger and much less healthy especially in isolated groups where inbreeding, deers with question mark-shaped antlers and great white spaces on their flanks, really bad if you're trying to blend blend into the woods, and increased susceptibility to viruses have become so common that government-organized herd cullings have to occur. Well, he says, we're having the same problem with ideas and the Internet, that without a natural limiting force, even the weakest, most nonsensical notions can thrive. Now, obviously, the past has seen its share of equivalent information expansion events and trends, but the speed at which facts and thoughts and ideas move on the Internet destroys the usual predators of bad ideas like nuance or history or research or reason, time to reflect, reliable sourcing in proper context. They were the cougars, the wolves, and the deer hunters of rank stupidity. And just as the natural obstacles to strong rather than willy-nilly growth are removed, the Internet removes in large part intentionally, through algorithmic suggestion, those analogous inhibitors, leaving society practically defenseless against the devastating impacts of unstoppable or unsupportable silliness masquerading as factual outrage. i got to tap the brakes here because I am up against a, a hard break. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Look, I see the I see the nonsense on the Internet. And by the way, I've learned to just keep scrolling. I don't, I don't even bother trying to correct people on things that I find obviously disagreeable. Just keep scrolling. See if you can find something of value. 
Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you are one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, first of all, welcome. Welcome to our island of freedom. <laughs> Secondly, if you're looking for a home, uh, you're going to find it's a pretty hot real estate market. Even, even with interest rates beginning to inch up, I want you to know that the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you and make things happen when time is of the essence. Heather has decades of experience. She's really great at what she does. She's also just a great person. And that's why I want to personally recommend her as the, the mortgage lender you need to talk to. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article on why there is so much Internet nonsense. Thomas Buckley is the author. I picked this up off AmericanThinker.com. And I like his analogy as, as uh, natural predators were removed to, to uh, keep deer herds at healthy sizes. The herds become very inbred. They become susceptible to disease. They become out of control, even destructive. And then, you know, fish and game departments have to mount a, a culling operation to, to kill off the excess deer. And I realize that's kind of traumatic for some people. What? They're, they're killing the deer? Oh, <laughs> Bambi! Well... The same problem is happening with the Internet where there's so much information and, and the, algorithmic, uh, the algorithmic limits that, that we're going through have eliminated natural inhibitors. And I like the example that he gives like nuance and history and research, things that could put good ideas out there to counter those bad ideas. They're being limited unnaturally. So he says, this process is not just limited to the Internet, but it's far more noticeable and destructive there. Take the issue of time for reflection, for example, that everyone has. While driving back from the restaurant, they, uh, he says, they just had that same moment of, oh, now I know what I should have said when Bill said this. Well, just those few moments of revisiting or rethinking about an idea allow a person how to better grasp or debate the issue properly. properly rather. But on the Internet, those extra minutes just don't exist. Like double-checking with a source you find reliable or looking to find any historical precedent or not, probing a bit deeper into a statement or even, God forbid, picking up a book to confirm basic facts. These, until quite recently, uh, ordinary responses to new information ideas are now entirely out of place in the Twitterverse. Now, he says, the strength of, an I- of a good idea is not necessarily in its inception, but its ability to stand the test of time. Amen. If concepts, either good or bad, are not challenged, they simply float eternally in the ether. The ones that are reasonable, no matter one's personal opinion, will survive the predators, while the ones that are not will die the quick deaths they are meant to. Either way, creating a space or process in which they can all be made to succeed or fall on their own merits is crucial, and that space or process is entirely antithetical to success in the online world. Certain social media services have tried to step in and become the predator by acting as censors by calling the Internet. However, those efforts are not only ineffective, but they're actually harmful, since it's the service itself that decides, for lack of a better phrase, what's a deer and what's not a deer. 
what should be targeted or what should not be targeted. And woe betide anything caught in the crossfire, especially when the definition of deer changes and changes again and changes back. He says the organic process of marketplace of, of the marketplace of ideas has been replaced by choices made by companies that have a vested financial interest in ensuring that the that most problematic, most infectious, most viral, if you will, concepts flourish. So web surfers tend not to click on things like everything is fine. The stock market has a good, steady, predictable day. And overwhelming majority say live and let live is a good idea headlines. What survives to the point of profitability is largely facile, purposely irksome or triggering, if you will, meant to encourage immediate continued interaction with whatever service, page, site, app you happen to be using. Another class of idea survivors is equally important, he says, those ideas which have been deemed necessary by the service itself. Now note that the words true or accurate or likely or honest or appropriate are not used, just the word necessary, as in to reach a predefined goal no matter what that may be. From electing Joe Biden to being able to monetize the influencer economy, only creating an end result that directly benefits those involved matters. And that's the most predatory of situations available. If nothing else, that should, that, you know, Thomas Buckley's giving you some reasons to really question what you hear, what you think about, what you read, especially online. For me, I think the, the threshold that, that I look for is when I see a headline and feel a, an immediate reaction, like, and, and this may sound juvenile, but uh, I see a headline and it's like, Nuh-uh. Here, I'm going to give you an example. Facebook is really good at this, so I'm going to pull up Facebook real quick. And let's just see. In the news feed, it seems like the, the headlines are always written in such a way to, to generate that, uh, that sense of, of interaction. And sometimes it's, you know, to, to do it from an, an adversarial approach. All right, here's CBS News. Inflation will clobber entitled generation of consumers, BlackRock president says. All right. That's not too incendiary. Uh, here we go. Business Insider. Seven videos show the ways Ukrainian fighters are mauling Russia's tanks. There may be some truth there, but I'm telling you, what you're hearing from, from most mainstream sources, it's, it's a comic book tale and not at all reflective of, of reality. Uh, Wanda Sykes recalls moment Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. Oh, really? Had that happened? I hadn't heard about that. Okay, sorry. Sarcasm off. Here's one from Yahoo Entertainment. Now, this one kind of gets my attention. Joe Rogan says he will quit if podcast becomes a place where he has to walk on eggshells. Yeah, there's more here, but uh, a lot of these headlines are written with the intent of, of getting you frightened or engaged or, or here we go, Duggar, Duggar fans are shocked by the outfit Ginger wore to Jeremiah and Hannah's wedding. <gasps> oh, the Daily Tattler. Tell me more. Tell me more. Now, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy the occasional escape into, you know, the, the trivial or the superficial. But if you are a person who's serious about maintaining your grasp on reality, first of all, it does take effort. And in our time and age, you've got to be just a little bit uh, cynical, or at least you've got to be 
willing to question and not just leap onto the bandwagon and start chanting in unison with what everybody else is saying. I found it personally to be a very good habit when something comes out, some breaking story, something that's very uh, uh, inflammatory or otherwise is getting a lot of buzz, just all of a sudden, splash, there it is. Generally, I will wait for a couple of days and look for as many other resources as possible just to see what's another angle on this and is this telling the whole story before I will even so much as comment on it. And that puts me behind the curve. I know there's a lot of competition. Well, I want to be first. I broke the story. You heard this here first. I was number one in line. Remember that. That's great. But it sucks when you get something wrong and you have to walk it back. And that's happened to me. And I don't like it. I think it, it, it undermines your credibility. And credibility is one of those things that takes a long time to establish. It takes years or more to build up. And you can throw it away with just one bad take that you jumped into without looking. So I like that time to reflect combined with things like being aware of nuance, taking a look at history, doing your own research. I also like looking for reliable sourcing. Now, that doesn't just mean sources that agree with me. That means looking for sources that can back up what they're saying and, and oftentimes you'll find that uh, some of the voices that, uh, that are more reliable are not going to be the ones that are broadly accepted by the mainstream. So even people who are, are being marginalized, I like to examine what they have to say and judge for myself. And I know this is going to sound like a flex, but I'm going to tell you anyway, it, it took me a long time to get to where I felt like I can trust my own reasoning or I can trust my ability to make up my own mind. You and I have been taught since we were very young. No, you can't. You need someone in authority to hand you truth because that's the only place you're ever going to get it. And I say that's a bunch of baloney. Truth is not something given to you by someone in authority. Truth is something you and I have to be able to, to think out and suss out and search out for ourselves. So why don't more people do it? You know, there are various explanations. I think the path of least resistance is probably the most reasonable explanation. But it's hard work. So it really comes down to the question, how badly do you really want to know the truth? And if it's badly enough to go searching for it on your own, well, congratulations, my friend. You are definitely on the right path. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. It's true that our motto is revel in wrong think. It's less of an attempt to be edgy and more of a fact of life for anybody who wants to maintain their sanity as they navigate their way through clown world. But if you are here to revel in wrong think, you will find yourself in very good company. And it's made possible by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, 
the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and GovernYourCrypto.com. There's handy links on my uh, show notes page, which you can access at TheBrianHydeShow.com. All right, I'm going to touch on a subject here that uh, is, this is touchy for me because my wife is a public school teacher. Now, she is a great teacher. She teaches math. She's very good at what she does, very respected and loved by her students as well as her administrators. And so this is a a hard subject for us to, to talk about sometimes because she is very careful not to get embroiled in some of the um, activism that goes on, even at public schools. And this is in a fairly rural part of America uh, where, you know, you would think, well, that kind of nonsense may play in the big cities, but not so much here. You'll find that uh, it's, it's happening in a lot of places. But I want to talk about teachers who are engaging in activism. And, and in particular, I'm seeing more and more of this trend of activist teachers recruiting kids into sexual identity and gender politics. And there's some pretty tricky ways that they're doing it. For instance, they will, they will change the, the name of, of activities and courses that, that they're involved in. You know, instead of saying, well, you know, we're, we're teaching this class on gender equity. They'll change it to it's a class on mental health. Same curriculum, just a different thing, trying to fool the parents. And when parents do get upset, you know, well, then they're classified as terrorists or extremists and they just don't get it. And, you know, Florida's going through this big thing about uh, don't be teaching. Stop teaching kids about gay sex. Why do you need to teach third graders through kindergartners about, uh, you know, certain sexual practices? And it's, they're saying, they're calling it, the people who are opposed to it are wrongly calling it, it's the don't say gay bill. How about it's don't groom my child bill? I mean, if we, if we want to want to play a little distortion here, maybe, maybe that's what we should call it. Abigail Schreier has some really unsettling examples here about how activist teachers in the California school system are recruiting kids on gender identity and sexual orientation. She says incensed parents now make news almost daily, objecting to radical material taught in their children's public schools. But little insight has been provided into the mindset and tactics of activist teachers themselves. But that now may be changing thanks to leaked audio from a meeting of California's largest teachers' union. Last month, the California Teachers Association, or CTA, held a conference advertising teachers on advising teachers rather on best practices for subverting parents, conservative communities, and school principals on issues of gender identity and sexual orientation. Speakers went so far as to tout their surveillance of students' Google searches, internet activity, and hallway conversations in order to target sixth graders for personal invitations to LGBTQ clubs while actively concealing these clubs' membership roles from the participants' parents. Now, she says, documents and audio files recently sent to me are and authenticated by three conference participants permitted a rare insight into the CTA's sold-out event in Palm Springs, held from October 29th through the 31st of 2021. The 2021 LGBTQ Plus Issues Conference, Beyond the Binary, Identity and Imagining Possibilities, provided best practices workshops that encourage teachers to have the courage to create a safe environment that fosters bravery to explore sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression, according to the oppressi of a talk given by fifth-grade teacher C. Scott Miller. 
Now, several of the workshops advise teachers on the creation of middle school LGBTQ clubs, commonly known as GSA or Gay Straight Alliance Clubs. One workshop, Queering in the Middle, focused on what practices have worked for successful middle school GSAs and children at this age developmentally. But what makes for a successful LGBTQ middle school club? What to do about meddlesome parents who don't want their middle schoolers participating in such a club? What if parents ask a club leader point blank if their child is a member? Buena Vista Middle School teacher and LGBTQ, LGBTQ club leader Lori Caldera states on an audio clip sent by a con- conference attendee, because we are not official, we have no club rosters, we keep no records. In fact, we sometimes really don't want to keep records because if parents get upset that their kids are coming, we're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe they came. You know, we would never want a kid to get in trouble for attending if their parents are upset. Well, isn't that great? Abigail Schreier says the advice to those who run middle school LGBTQ clubs is keep no records so you can plead ignorance of the membership with the member's parents. In fact, middle school teacher Kelly Baraki could be heard in the same session describing having named her club the Equity Club and then UBU rather than the more ubiquitous GSA. Now, both of these middle school teachers led a workshop titled How We Run a GSA in Conservative Communities. And the audio recording of their lecture was sent to Abigail Schreier by a conference attendee. In that address, the speakers described the challenges for activist teachers working in the context of a politically mixed community in Central California with many conservative parents. So the teacher leaders of this club apparently faced a constant problem, how to keep the middle school kids coming back to their group. They said, we have LGBTQ kids who come to us and they come and spend a year with us and they get all the love and affirmation they need. Caldera, it can be heard to say, and we give them tools to be powerful and brave and bold. But then they go and hang with their friends at lunch and they do their things and we love them for that, but we miss them when they don't join us. So we saw our membership numbers start to decline. So what did they do? They totally stocked what these kids were doing on Google. See, middle school kids apparently did not have endless interest in sitting around with their teachers during lunch discussing their sexual orientation and gender identities. So this teacher says, we started to brainstorm at the end of the 2020 school year. What are we going to do? We got to see some kids in person at the end of last year. Not many, but a few. So we started to try and identify kids. When we were doing our virtual learning, we totally stalked what they were doing on Google when they weren't doing schoolwork. One of them was Googling Trans Day of Visibility, and we're like, check, we're going to invite that kid when we get back on campus. Whenever they follow the Google Doodle links or whatever, right, we make note of those kids and the things they bring up with each other in chats or emails or whatever. But Rocky can be heard to say, beyond electronic surveillance of kids' internet use, she says, We use our observations of kids in the classroom, conversations that we hear, to personally invite students, because that's really the way we kind of get the bodies in the door, right? They need a little sort of, they need sort of a little bit of an invitation, Baraki says in the clip. Now, for those paying attention, the educators who guide California teachers in the creation of middle school LGBTQ clubs asserted the following. They struggle to maintain student participation in the clubs. Many parents oppose the clubs. Teachers surveil students electronically to ferret out students who might be interested, after which the identified student is recruited to the club via a personal invitation. 
Caldera says, I'm a teacher who runs our morning announcements. That's another type of strategy I can give you. I'm the one who controls the messaging. Everybody says, oh, Ms. Caldera, you're so sweet you volunteered to do that. Of course I'm so sweet that I volunteered to do that because then I control the information that goes home. And for the first time this year, students have been allowed to put openly LGBT content into our morning announcement slides. Now, Caldera gushes about the student team she assembled to help with announcements. Three of the kids are on the team. Two of them are non-binary, and the other is just very fluid in every way. She's fabulous. So it's actually a nice group. And the principal, she may flinch, but she flinches privately. Now, Abigail Schreier says, but if students aren't especially interested in attending an LGBTQ club, if the leaders have trouble maintaining membership, if parents oppose them and schools, as Caldera complains, often fail to support them, why on earth are the t- these teachers pushing them? Well, Caldera says, for those of you that are running or thinking of running your own GSA or GSA-type club, Always remember that youth are the drivers of change. If you want to bring a new world into existence, it seems a good place to start is with other people's kids. Now, on the audio recording, they, recording these two teachers explain they give an anti-bullying school presentation every year, saying, let me assure you that the presentation that we gave was 100% age-appropriate. Literally, definitions. If somebody is gay, if a, it is a man who's attracted to another man, right? If somebody's lesbian, it's a female attracted to another female. Literally gave them definitions. We also covered religious differences, race, cultural black backgrounds, family poverty, family status of poverty, everything that's listed in the parents' rights handbooks. But that's not what the kids went home and told their parents. You'll have to wait till after the break to hear what the kids were sent home with. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to give a quick shout out here to HSLMO.com. I've got the link right there in my show notes under the sponsors section. And if you are in southern Utah, particularly in St. George, you would be well advised. Go buy some ammo from Spencer and his crew at HSL Ammo. Go visit his website. Think of it as a commodity that's worth worth uh, putting aside, you know, as a store of value, or better still, for taking out and making a joyous noise for freedom. I don't know. There's something fun about developing your skill at arms, and HSL Ammo can help help you do that with quality, new, and remanufactured ammunition. So check him out. I really appreciate him being a sponsor of the program. I want to go back to this article by Abigail Schreier. This is from her Substack account on how activist teachers in California schools are recruiting kids into gender identity and sexual orientation clubs. And we were talking about how these two teachers, uh, Ms. Baraki and Caldera, explained that they gave this anti-bullying school presentation. And they went through all the different things, you know, literally definitions, but the kids went home and told their parents, you know, what what was going on, and the parents were not happy. So Caldera and Baraki learned from the experience. There was parent backlash. So they said, next year, we're just going to do a little mind trick on our sixth graders. They were last to go through this presentation, and the gender stuff was the last thing we talked about. So next year, they'll be going first with this presentation, and the gender stuff will be the first thing they hear about, hopefully to mitigate, you know, these kind of responses. Baraki can be heard telling the teacher audience, parents who oppose this material being taught to their sixth graders will find their objections arrive too late. 
Now, she actually has a link to how they, this is from the actual presentation, how they rebuilt their program and clawed their way back to existence, in Baraki's words. She says, a conference attendee then told me that Baraki directed the participants' attention to a parent email objecting to the presentation. The parent had written that she had not intended to have a conversation with her middle schooler about sexual orientation and gender identity, but the school presentation had forced her hand. Now, Baraki mocked the parent to her audience. I know, so sad, right? Sorry for you, you had to do something hard. Honestly, your 12-year-old probably knew all that, right? One parent objected so strenuously that the principal invited them to take their child to a private school that more aligns with them. Caldera can be heard to say. So that was a win, right? We count that as a win. Then Caldera added, plus, I hate to say this, but thank you, CTA, but I have tenure. You can't fire me for running a GSA. And so you can be mad, but you can't fire me for it. CTA has made it very clear they are devoted to human rights and equity. They provide us with these sources, these resources and tools. So despite the use of these sundry tactics, Caldera insists to her audience of educators, you should know we've also acted with great integrity in the past several years that we've run our GSA. We never crossed a line. We've wanted to, but we never have. Now, Abigail, Abigail Schreier says, look, I have no reason to believe that these activist educators are part of the gay or transgender communities themselves. For decades, gay Americans lived under the shadow of a vicious calumny that, if granted full inclusion in society, they would recruit children. And she says this was and remains a lie, one that was used to justify bigotry, even violence. But taking advantage of Americans' current desire for LGBTQ inclusiveness, California's largest teachers' union seems, perversely, to have perceived the opportunity to coach teachers in student recruiting tactics. I think I I would actually disagree with uh, Abigail Schreier in the sense that, uh, you know, recruiting is uh, is a non-issue. Um, and this is not to say that, you know, every person who is, you know, gay is is out there recruiting people. But I think in the broadest possible sense, and I'm, I'm trying to say this with the, the least amount of, of um, you know, spite or anything like that. I don't want to make this sound like, oh, gee, you know, they're bad. They're, they're all bad people. But... Yeah. Same-sex couples cannot produce children naturally, which means there has to be some recruiting at some level. You, you don't, you don't just, they can't have kids, you know, naturally, like a heterosexual union can produce. Oh, I understand there's in vitro fertilization and there's all this, you know, but um, I'm just, I'm trying to stick to the basic facts of nature. And the militant LGBTQ community members which I think comprises a very small minority, even of, of the gay community. Those are the ones who are actively recruiting. Now, there's nothing scientific about what I'm saying here. I'm just, and I'm, this is purely anecdotal, but the individuals I know who happen to be gay are typically pretty private people. They don't wear it on their shirt sleeve. Their life is not a political statement in which they're going out there and making sure everybody is looking at them and they're fishing for attention and, you know, validation. And actually, they, they often will find themselves at odds with the more militant activists out there who are, are, you know, banging the drum and waving the rainbow flag and, you know, trying to get to kids to, to explore their sexuality. I actually saw a meme that I thought was pretty descriptive of this. And, you know, I, I don't share this to be offensive, but it uh, shows uh, Snow White. 
meeting this little girl. And this little girl's like, I've waited my whole life to meet you. And Snow White says, that's wonderful. Let's explore your sexuality. And I think that's, that's kind of the attitude that I see, you know, some of these teachers bringing to, to this situation. Now, keep in mind, Caldera is an award-winning teacher. She's the leader of her school's equity club. And she's shared her views publicly before. In a podcast interview on November 5th of 2020, she said much the same. Quote, and so our equity club, we've dealt with uh, issues of race. We've dealt with issues of different religious belief systems. We deal a lot with sexual orientation and gender identity. As middle schoolers, that's the age where they're asserting their identity and defining themselves as a separate identity from their parents, or entity from their parents, rather. And so they're looking. I mean, they, they are... Uh, they are looking, I think, for some guidance on, is this okay? Can I do this? What does this mean? And so we talk about that. Now, as Caldera said on that podcast, the topics for her equity club are selected by her middle schoolers. So the kids come, they have something on their mind they want to talk about, and then we have some structures in place for how to have those kinds of complicated conversations. And you know, they include those group norms about respect. What happens in this room stays in this room. Now, that might lead parents to an obvious follow-up. Does a middle school child talking to her parents about the content of those meetings constitute a violation of the group's norms? In this case, Abigail Schreier says, I reached out to the Spreckles Union School District, at which both Caldera and Baraki teach, for comment. Neither Superintendent Eric Tarallo nor Buena Vista Middle School Principal Caitlin Perrigan nor Baraki or Caldera replied to my requests for comments. Look, this is this is not to to generate anger or hatred towards these activist teachers. But don't you think parents have a right to to be concerned with with this kind of activity taking place, especially under the guise of, well, we have to use a little bit of trickery and a little bit of deception here and there. It's just a little bit, just a smidgen of it. But the fact that it's there at all, I don't know, that just strikes me as really inappropriate. And the fact that, you know, they'll brag about, well, you can get mad at me, but I have tenure and you can't do anything to fire me. That's uh, that's disturbing as well. I wrote a few years ago uh, a column about how what happens when a society makes sex its God. And without hashing out all the details there, J.D. Unwin, the British anthropologist, studied 85 different civilizations, large and small. Historically, he found Without exception, when a society became more focused on pleasure-seeking, rather than channeling their, their um, sexual desires in a more productive direction, in other words, insisting on fidelity, both pre- and post-marriage, those societies, without exception, declined. And if you think about this, in terms of well you know if if a person if pleasure seeking really is the most important thing in life if that's if if hedonism is where it's at how are you going to fault somebody when they walk away from their vows how are you going to fault somebody when they can't keep their word because hey i had the opportunity to find pleasure and i did i think the warning signs are there for those who care to see it but what's fashionable right now is push that envelope and the fact that it's being pushed with kids I don't disagree with the characterization of that sounds a lot like grooming them. I don't want to see what comes next. I'm worried about what that might be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to ask a small favor. And I know it's like, Brian, who are you to be asking favors of us? But, uh, well, this is the favor I would ask of you. If you find value in the show, if you find, uh, whether it's through the, the commentaries that I share with you on air, or whether it's the, uh, the show notes and the links that can lead you to better understanding of a given topic, please let somebody else know about it. That's all I'm asking. Just, you know, if you could just say, hey, have you considered this resource? There are people out there who are very actively looking for reliable sources. I don't know who they are. I'm trying to do my best to just put it out there and and hope it finds its way. But with your help, you know, we're one step closer to to helping people get on that path where they are thinking clearly and independently for themselves and not dependent on anybody, including me, to sit there and tell them this is what you have to think or this is what you should think about, you know, current events. Came across an article that made me think a lot about this, about how can a broken society break its addiction to things like cynicism, joylessness, and information? Yes, addiction to information. Oh, I've been addicted to information for a long, long time. Still struggle with it, as a matter of fact. Well, Emina Melonic has a great article. This was on AmericanGreatness.com about how we can reject the idle twirling of a society addicted to cynicism, joylessness, and information. She talks, she calls it Start From Zero Again. And, and she begins with the quote, May you live in interesting times, and says it's one of those sentiments that appears to be a benediction, but it's actually a curse. Allegedly, it's an ancient Chinese curse to be aimed at one's enemy. Interesting in this case means bad and chaotic times, during which peace and tranquility are impossible to find. And although its original source is highly disputed, the phrase has entered our cultural lexicon. Now, one could certainly say that we are living in interesting times. I mean, there's chaos, there's disorder and apathy, and perhaps even an epical shift toward all of these. But since we do not possess knowledge of the future and how events will unfold, perhaps such statements are too dramatic. Now, whatever the future may hold, most people still have a sense of the past, both recent and distant. And it is the distant past that connects us to our ancestors on a personal level and cultural riches on a collective level. She says pop psychology and fashion counsel us to let go of the past with airheaded calls to look to the future. And while there may be a time and place for such counsel on a personal level, something that should be discussed with one's therapist if one is needed, denial of the past takes on a different, more sinister meaning, meaning rather, if we're talking about society at large. Now, her point is we are witnessing this with the so-called Great Reset. People like Klaus Schwab and uh, Bill Gates lead organizations that live by one motto, and that is start from zero. Now, the great American journalist, novelist, and cultural critic Tom Wolfe thought and wrote a lot about this phenomenon. In his essay, The Great Learning, Wolfe recalls his reportage on the hippies in San Francisco during that chaotic year, 1968. The hippies, writes Wolf, sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restraints of the past and start out from zero. It would be one thing if this movement was only contained to the hippies' communes, or communes, rather, where old diseases, both intellectual and literal, became new again, but it wasn't. Long before 1968, a small group of architects started the Bauhaus School of Architecture, whose slogan was, Start from Zero. Its founder was Walter Gropius, the Silver Prince, White God Number One, as Wolf calls him, in From Bauhaus to Our House. 
who thought that he had a better idea about how people should live than his predecessors. By starting from zero in architecture and design, writes Wolf, man could free himself from the cold, dead hand of the past. Well, this turned out to be true. But like the seeming benediction of interesting times, it's far from a blessing. Architects that followed Gropius's dictum certainly freed themselves from the past. In fact, they were so freed from it that some of them only talked about architecture and never built anything. Others stuck to the traditional path of actually building something, but alas, the flat roofs leaked from rain and collapsed from snow. The tiny bare beige office cubicles made workers feel like component parts. The glass walls let in too much heat, too much cold, too much glare, and no air at all. Now, if our only worries these days involve badly designed and executed architecture, but there's another component which Wolf mentions in The Great Learning, indicating nothing has changed. It was the political realm that was most affected by the notion that we should start from zero. For the 20th century, this resulted in communism, the legacy of which still continues to plague us. And the problem was not so much with what communism and especially Leninism looked like in theory, but with the people who thought and firmly believed that a new world order can and should and must arise. In this order, morality is reimagined and society's ambitions will have no limit. Nobody will be flying too close to the sun because we are all our own individual sons, and the myth of Icarus will be either unknown or deemed quaint. And so here we are again. The cultural forces of the 21st century want us to start from zero. Klaus Schwab and his whole Gnostic congregation at the World Economic Forum are reimagining a just society in which inequality is addressed, fought, and destroyed. Now, there's a price to be paid, however. Sovereignty and freedom are no longer viable realities of human life. And, of course, that which is deemed unequal is a matter to be decided by the oligarchical elites. So it's not only the globalist dream of world domination that's part of the start from zero slogan. Toppled statues and that dreadful 1619 project, they're all part of the same web of lies among many others. But unlike the ecstasy of the hippies in the 1960s, we see no release, sexual or otherwise, that might indicate some celebration of the old-fashioned decadence and hedonism, which at least would be recognizably human. Rather, we witness the listlessness that comes from the insistence that being a slave is a good human condition. The lips are forced to mouth the words and our bodies are forced to comply, but the mind and heart protest, if only in quiet screams. Many people, particularly in Western nations, were already primed for what emerged when the COVID phenomenon hit the world. Personal phobias and extreme narcissism have flourished thanks to the oprification of the mind. The dawn of the new technological age has lost almost all connection to its original innovation. Instead, we see openly advertised and ridiculous ambitions that technology alone will bring us goodness, justice, and a final end to human suffering. Evil will no longer exist because we now have iPhones and can connect to others on a global scale. Now what these fantasies forget is the same thing that Soviet communism forgot. Human nature remains. There is no real relearning, and only acedia and worse, society is mainly too listless to even know what condition it's in. As Wolf writes, in the 21st century, people are idly twirling information about on the Internet, killing time like Victorian matrons, content to live in what will be known as the somnolent century or the 20th century's hangover. 
the Internet is in its own torpor as well, and its fast pace indicates no authentic movement of time. The idleness inspired by the Internet is less a depressive, immovable state than it is an obsession with information that turns into mania. Now, Emina Milonic says, God is dead, declared Nietzsche's madman, and it seems this self-fulfilling prophecy has continued to this day. The narcissism of our age is that we can only kill God if we have created God. But since God lives apart from our wills and is beyond time, beyond being, and beyond our imagination, we are destined to confront him unprepared. Start from zero is a slogan of someone who deems himself a God and who cannot see the true way in which human beings connect with one another. She says, God, in fact, is not dead. We just have to open our eyes and reject the idle twirling of a society addicted to cynicism, joylessness, and information. Okay, I'm going to put my own spin on this. Please forgive me for doing so, but I like what uh, Emina Milonic is saying here. And I think when she talks about breaking that addiction to cynicism, joylessness, and information... What she's talking about is finding a greater sense of personal purpose in our own lives. Now, that means that everybody is necessarily going to have something different. This means we're not all going to be reading from the same script or doing the exact same thing. And I'm okay with that. When I talk about a sense of personal purpose, I'm talking about something that is uniquely yours, something that is uniquely mine. And as grandiose as it may sound, I think that each of us, you and I, have some mission, if you will, some purpose, something that is so uniquely ours, but is so essential, it's a way that only you can change the world. And the catch is, you're going to need God's help to do it. First of all, to figure out what it is, and secondly, to carry it out, because it's not going to be some easy snap your fingers, you know, hey, look, everything's changed, kind of a kind of a deal. Does that scare you? I mean, is that the kind of thing that make you go, oh, man, I don't know if I want anything of that, because, you know, frankly, people who change the world, they, they put themselves at risk sometimes, right? Yeah. But thank goodness they do. Because... By taking that risk, they have improved the world in small but very real ways. I guess the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, am I willing to seek out and answer that call if I hear it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you have given any serious thought to taking a closer look or maybe even taking a dive into cryptocurrency. But if you'll look on my show page, actually on my show notes page, you'll find a link to governyourcrypto.com. Click the link and it could be the start of a journey, you know, where you can learn. If, if you already know about it, well, take a look and see if it's something that would fit your needs. If you're looking to learn more, Click on the link and see if you're ready to start that journey. I think we're going to see some changes in our monetary system, and I mean some big changes, some of which people may see as good. Well, look how much more convenient it's going to be when everything is digital and there's no more cash, and some that's not so good, like, hey, that privacy that you used to enjoy, yeah, that's going out the window, 
when uh, when you have to use a central bank issued digital currency. Good time to be informed. Crypto may be one way to keep part of, uh, of your wealth, your value out of the hands of people who would otherwise love to control it, to partner with you, you know, against your will, of course. I don't know if you saw the clip here a couple of days ago, but uh, Dr. Fauci was on a program. I think he was being interviewed uh, on the on the BBC. <clears throat> and he was uh, asked about, uh, you know, the cost of the lockdowns. And I, I, I really have to choose my words carefully because um, Dr. Fauci is to me, kind of a contemptible individual. And to hear him claim, well, we may never know if the costs of lockdowns will outweigh the benefits. We may never know. I'm not sure how to even unpack that. He, we may never know. That's, that's him trying to dodge any kind of responsibility for the very measurable damage that he and his insane policies created. So I want to share with you what I think would constitute a good dose of reality for the good doctor, from the uh, regarding the flawed Imperial College model that fueled his fear machine. This is a combined effort from Steve Hankey and Kevin Dowd, published in NationalReview.com. The subtitle, Imperial College's death estimates over the years have some things in common. Flawed modeling, hair-raising predictions of disaster that missed the mark, most importantly, no lessons learned, which I think Dr. Fauci just proved in spades. The authors here say the defining event of the history of Western COVID lockdowns occurred on March 16th of 2020 with the publication of the now infamous Imperial College London COVID report, which predicted that in the absence of any control measures or spontaneous changes in individual behavior, there would be 510,000 COVID deaths in Great Britain and 2.2 million in the United States. Now, this prediction sent shockwaves around the world. The next day, the U.K. media announced the country was going into lockdown, and the impact of the report was amplified by the U.K.'s soft power machine, the BBC. Its reach has no equal, broadcasting in 42 languages, reaching 468 million people worldwide each week and efficiently disseminating its message. With the BBC in full cry and the public genuinely alarmed, there was no room for dissent. A copycat cascade then took hold with the U.S. and other countries embracing London's message and policies. The result was a policy based on a defective model that originated at Imperial College under the leadership of Neil Ferguson. Now, the model's major flaw is that its assumption that people would be unresponsive to the dangers that accompany uh, is that people would be unresponsive to the dangers that accompany a pandemic. That behavioral assumption is unrealistic. If people are told they are in danger of catching a potentially lethal disease, most will take action to reduce their exposure. So the Imperial team turned the world on its head with fantasy numbers about a scenario that could never materialize. And before hurrying into panicked policy decisions, UK policymakers should have been aware that Neil Ferguson's Imperial College team had a history of defective modeling. With minimal effort, Policymakers would have quickly discovered that the team had a track record that makes astrology look respectable. That dreadful record started with the UK foot and mouth disease epidemic in 2001, during which the Imperial College modelers persuaded government to adopt a policy of mass animal slaughter. Their model predicted that daily daily case incidences would peak at about 420. Now, at the time, the number of incidences had already peaked at just over 50 and was falling. The prediction missed its mark 
and as many as 10 million animals, most of which could have been vaccinated, were needlessly killed. Shortly thereafter, in January 2002, the Imperial team suggested that up to 150,000 people in the UK could die from mad cow disease. As it turned out, the number of total UK deaths was 178. Another miss for the Imperial team. Then, in 2005, Neil Ferguson suggested that up to around 200 million could die from bird flu globally. And he justified this claim by comparing the lethality of bird flu to that of the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak, which killed 40 million. Well, by 2021, bird flu had killed 456 people worldwide, making it Imperial's biggest miss. At least their biggest miss yet. Neil Ferguson and his team were back at it again in 2009 when they claimed 65,000 people could die of swine flu in the UK. But by the end of March 2010, the outbreak had killed fewer than 500 people before petering out. Neil Ferguson's reasonable worst-case scenario was over 130 times too high, yet another big miss. And in each case, he had the very same pattern. Flawed modeling, hair-raising predictions of disaster that missed the mark, and no lessons learned. And those same mistakes were repeated over and over again and were never challenged by those in authority. Why? Well, maybe the Imperial College models are ideal for are ideal fear-generating machines for politicians and governments craving more power. You know, H.L. Mencken put his finger on this phenomenon when he wrote that the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. Well, the Imperial College modeling team should have faced an audit of its models and practices after the foot and mouth disease debacle more than 20 years ago. Had that been done, later fiascos might have been avoided. Be that as it may, Imperial should certainly face an audit now, and it should focus on the inadequacy of the team's models and how faulty policy recommendations were derived from them. Steve Hankey and uh, Kevin Dowd conclude governments across the world should also initiate their own public inquiries to draw lessons and address the measures needed to protect their citizens from reckless public health modeling. Never again should scientists, in quotation marks, armed with flawed models, get away with shouting pandemic in a theater filled with politicians and bureaucrats eager to grab yet more power. Ooh, that last line is a gem. I know it's going to sound petty, but uh, Dr. Fauci needs to get off the stage and quickly. He needs to quietly retire and hopefully, I don't know, maybe he can maybe he can move to South America, you know, and and uh, and and quietly retire there in some kind of anonymity. Because at some point that man needs to sit before a Nuremberg-style tribunal to answer for what he has done, the damage that he has done and the carnage that he has wrought upon the American populace. And I know that sounds like, Brian, geez, dude, you know, switch to decaf or something here. But I, I really, I, when I see him trying to say that, well, we, we may never know if the costs outweighed the benefits. We know. And what's worse is there were people who knew from the very beginning. There were voices that were clearly sounding the warning of, hey, don't go there. And he did it anyway. And I know this is going to hurt some people's feelings, but... Uh, your boy Donald Trump, 
for whatever reason, he erred on the side of, well, you know, I better look like I'm doing something rather than, you know, holding back and, and, and taking a more rational approach. And he enabled it to happen. You can't deny that he was part of the problem for the lockdowns. And now you got Fauci talking about, well, we may have to bring back even more restrictive lockdowns. I don't have a good feeling about that. Not from the standpoint of, well, I don't want to be locked down again. I've already made my mind up. I will not be locked down again. I think a lot of you have probably made that same determination. It's just not going to happen. But I think that we have reached the point where if uh, if we see an attempt to, to impose an Australia or uh, New Zealand type lockdown on the American people, Basically, those uh, fiery but mostly peaceful protests, you know, by BLM are going to look like a Sunday school picnic in comparison. I don't think people will stand for it. And you know what? As, as radical as this may sound, I think people would be right to absolutely stand up, push back, and if necessary, fight back against that kind of tyranny. Now, that's just my opinion. Certainly, it's not something I'm, you know, thinking, well, it'd be great if it happened. I'm saying I don't want to see us pushed into it. And I don't know if the political class has the ability to see beyond their own hubris to recognize the danger that's staring them in the face. They're being given a chance to back off. Why won't they take it? Dr. Fauci, why won't you take it? Take the hint. Go retire comfortably in South America. And don't ever vex us with your presence again, please. This is The Brian Hyde Show.